We'll start in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1 and 18. The title of today's message, we're starting a new series, which is going to be at least uh, two weeks long, may end up being more than that. Uh, the series title is Epic of the Forsaken, and the message title for today is The Ballad of the Crimson Worm, which I know sounds very odd, but it will make sense before we're done, I promise. Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 18 says, Come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your amazing word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would give us both of those things this morning in ample amounts. Your word through your Holy Spirit that we may receive revelation of what you have for us and what you have in our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You guys may be seated this morning. So we just came through uh, what was a great Passover slash Easter service and season and uh, felt really, really good about it. I thought we had a great turnout. We had a great service and that's we're just one small little portion. But across the, the board, it was just it was a good season. Have a lot of pastor friends that some of them are uh, have been doing church a couple years longer than us. Some of us, some of them are brand new, and then of course I have my senior pastor and folks like that as well. And everybody everywhere it just seemed like it was good. It was really good, um, good good little season. And then after that um, after that ended after that Sunday was over, uh, continued to be good. But there was I don't know. It was like this shift back to reality, almost like God was saying. Um, you know what? I want to I want to give you a little uh, a little kick. I want to give you a little uh, a little energy shot or whatever it is. Remind you of how good I am. Remind you uh, of how good church is. And then I want you to open your eyes again and see the degradation of your society and what's going on in this world right now. You open up any news report you get on drudge, you get on the internet, whatever it is you do, and it just seems like that powder keg over there in that other part of the world is just getting closer and closer and closer to just exploding with this Kim Jong-un or Ian or whatever his name is. I'm honestly not trying to be disrespectful. I just don't know how to say it. Uh, and everything, all this always going on with Israel and Iran and Egypt and God only knows. And then, of course, in this country, we have our own issues, our own problems. Currencies around the world. Cyprus is going bankrupt. Italy is next. Spain's looking down the same line. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Everything's crazy. And in the midst of all that, it just seemed like to me, I don't know if it seemed the same to you, that God was able to just for a moment say, forget all of that and remember how easy life with me is. Remember how Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come unto me, those that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, God has these seasons and these times of rest, and it's good to enter into that. And it's good to be in that spirit. But then at the same time, we are, I, I posted on Facebook a little while back. Some of you might've seen, it. I don't remember exactly what I said, but something to the tune of we are, we are not in heaven yet. God is all loving. God is in control, but we are not in heaven. That is a perfect formula for bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people. 
And I don't remember the whole rest of the post, but the point that I wanted to, to bring up this morning is that we serve an all-powerful, all-loving God. We serve a mighty God. We serve a God of peace. But we live in a world of turmoil. We live in a planet that is constantly at war. And if it's not in a global type of war, which it seems like it always is, then we're at war in ourselves, Paul says. Even if you live in a peaceful region, you are flesh and you are spirit. And your flesh and your spirit are constantly at battle over who owns your soul. Whether it's God's or whether it's the enemy's. But despite what kind of a season we might be in, despite the turmoil that might be around you, despite the tribulation that you might be going through, you still serve a good God. You still serve a mighty God. And I believe that God put this message out there and put this message on my heart to not put us back into a place of any type of complacency that everything is easy or everything is good. But instead, help us get our armor on. Remember we said a while back, one of our mottos at Edgewater is that we are never going to pray for an easy life. We are going to pray for the strength to endure a hard one. Because that is the reality. That is the truth. So that's what we want to do. So this morning, I want to show you something that is mind-blowing, that is mind-boggling. I hope you see it the same way that I see it. I hope I'm able to project it to you in the fullness of its nature. The God that you serve is so in control. He is so on top of it. He sees so far into the future. He knows all things. He is so good. He is so mighty. He is so able. There literally is no reason for us to fear. But there is also no good reason for us to turn away and refuse to look at the state of the world that we live in. We can face it if we believe in the love of God that casts out all fear. You know, the Bible says exactly 365 times, fear not. You think God understood or knew that we would declare that a year would be made up of 365 days? I'm sure he understood that. I'm sure he knew that. So one for every day. Fear not. When you wake up in the morning, you can just tell yourself that. Get started on the word of God right away. Wake up. Fear not. Turn to your husband. Turn to your wife. Fear not. Walk down the hallway, if that's what it is, to your husband and to your wife. Fear not. Call a friend. Get on Facebook. Tweet somebody. Fear not. I hate that word tweet. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. I feel like you should apologize after you tweet, like excuse yourself from the room. Oh, sorry. I just tweeted. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. That's just how it comes off. To me. Forgive me. Matthew 27, verse number 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 Lama. Sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So this morning we're starting on the road of the epic of the forsaken. Mark chapter 15, verse 34 says that the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Isaiah 118, as we read, says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Many people have asked what Jesus meant, why he would cry out, what he cried out on the cross. My father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? There are a number of reasons. One of the main ones is for the crowd of Jewish people, of Hebrew people. They were standing around at the time of his crucifixion and the even thicker crowd of Hebrew people that would witness it through the written word through the accounts of the four Gospels, as well as the oral account of all of the apostles and all the followers of Christ who knew and understood, as well as the oral account of the Romans that were present. If you remember at the time of his crucifixion, after the earth shook, after things fell apart, after the veil was rent in the temple, one of the Roman guards fell to his knees and said, Surely this is the Son of God. So even through that account that they would understand at some point, Why did Jesus, I'm sure they had the same question, cry out, my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the son of God. And they said to him while he was on the cross, if you are this Messiah, get yourself off the cross, save yourself. Where is your father? And Jesus knew and the gospels testified to us that he could have called down 10,000 upon 10,000 angels and that he could have gone that route, but he didn't. He stayed on the cross He died that death, but he cried out at one point, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Where that would take the Jewish mind and where it would take the mind of that day and where it's going to take our minds this morning or this afternoon is the Psalm chapter 22. We'll start in verse number one. To the chief musician. A Psalm of David, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Psalm chapter 22, as penned by David, precedes the birth of Christ by a thousand years. So when Jesus says, my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? He's quoting, obviously, we can see here from Psalm 22. So it would take your mind right here to this psalm. And then what an intelligent person would do is read the rest of it. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear not. And in the night season, and I am not silent. Jesus was put on the cross early in the morning. He stayed on the cross for upwards of six hours. He cried out to God in the morning, and he cried out to God In the evening, but you are holy, you that inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you did deliver them. Verse 5 They cried unto you and were delivered, they trusted in you and they were not confounded. But I am a worm, verse 6, and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. And they that see me, they laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake their head, and they say, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. So let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. And the thief on the left side of Jesus looks over and says, well, if you are the son of God, where is your father? Why doesn't he deliver you? I don't think he had knowledge of exactly what he was saying. Verse nine, but you are he that took me out of the womb. You did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. 
I was cast upon thee from the womb. You are my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me into the dust of death. As Christ hung on the cross, his bones would have eventually been pulled out of joint. His shoulder sockets, some other joints in his arms, stretched out even through his torso. And he was so thirsty at one point, they began to dip a sponge in vinegar and hyssop, and they put it up to his mouth for him to drink, but he denied it. Verse 15, my strength is dried up, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have closed, enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell on my bones, they look and they stare upon me. Of course, his hands and his feet were pierced, but they also came by, if you read the account, and they wanted to, they came to the thief on one side and they broke his legs and they came to the thief on the other side and they broke his legs because when you break somebody's legs as they're hanging on the cross, it causes them to droop even further and they die even sooner. And there was a festival coming up, so they needed them to die and they, walk, they walked up to Jesus to break his legs so that he would die and they figured out that he was already dead, fulfilling a prophecy of the Old Testament for the Passover lamb that not a bone of him shall be broken. And they pierced him in the side and out came blood and water. And here it says in verse 14, I am poured out like water. Then they took his clothes, his vestures, they parted them, and they cast lots. And here in verse 18, it says they part my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. Be not far from me, O Lord, my strength. Haste to help me. Save me from the lion's mouth. For you have heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name. Unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All the seed of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none shall keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and they shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he has done this big deal. Psalm 22, very big deal. So when Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, Ella, Sabachthani, father, father, why hast thou forsaken me? He's taken them all the way back a thousand years before as a little shepherd boy who was raised up to be king 
worshipped his God and got a word that was so specific and wrote a song that was so specific that it accounted in detail the future crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That alone is amazing. That in and of itself makes me wonder how a person can look at the Word of God, can read that, see that, and contemplate in their head that it might not be real. The Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. That seems a little bit harsh, but when you read this, you'd have to kind of say the same thing. Well, how else did this happen? You can go to a fortune teller if you want. You can go get somebody to read their tarot cards. You can call up Miss Chloe on the 1-800 hotline. You can do whatever it is you want to do, and they might be able to give you some type of general term. You can crack open a fortune cookie. Good luck, because those things are terrible. They're not even fortune cookies anymore. My brother calls them statement cookies. So they don't tell you anything fortunate. They just tell you like you are happy or something ridiculous. You can go to any of these people and maybe even get some kind of general term or word of something that might happen to you tomorrow or the next day or next week. And be careful. I'm not telling you to go to these people because if they can tune in, if they are correct, they are hearing from a spirit that is not the spirit of God. And that is something you don't want on your life. My point in even bringing it up is they can't tell anybody what's going to happen a thousand years from now. They can't even attempt it or try it. David wasn't sitting inside of a tent with a hand-painted sign of a palm print on the outside saying, come speak to me. God has told me prophecies of the future. David was just playing a harp. David was just in prayer. David was just in fasting. And he decided he wanted to write what was on his heart to worship God. He wasn't even trying to tell the future. But we serve a God that knows. And we serve a God that is in control. Amen? There's just one verse in Psalm 22 that kind of bothers me. One verse that kind of stood out. One verse that didn't really make sense. And I told our leadership team this morning as a side note, if you want to be excited about studying your Bible, you want to find things in there that you have to dig to find. You want to find revelation. You want to find depth. You want to get in there and learn how to study. One of the first steps you can take is to read the Bible and take special note of those scriptures that seem to not make any sense. Those ones that stand out, that use weird terminology, or that are in the middle of something totally, the, the whole scripture, the whole chapter is talking about one thing, and this verse right in the middle just all of a sudden talks about something else. And then it goes back to that one thing. Anything that stands out, you can take that apart, you can take it back to Hebrew, take it back to Greek, take it to other forms of study uh, that we don't have time to talk about all of them this morning. You can usually find something. There's a verse like that in Psalm 22. Once you understand that this psalm is a prophecy of Jesus, then verse number six is kind of odd. It says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. A worm is such a weird description for Jesus. You think of a worm... And it can even take you all the way back to things like snakes or as the Bible talks about dragons and serpents, things of that nature. If you were going to describe anybody as a great red worm, if I were to tell you, uh, use the terminology of a great red worm this morning and you're, you have your spiritual mind on, hopefully your, your mind would go straight to Satan. 
Because he's the great red dragon. He's the great red worm, yes? Is everybody cold? Raise your hand if you're cold. Well, you're so cold you can't raise your hand? Well, let's just keep it like it is. I saw a comedian the other day. He asked everybody in the congregation to raise their hand if they go to a church where people lift up their hands and praise and worship, and it's kind of that more charismatic deal, and people rose their hands and were excited. And then he said, now, um, raise your hand if you go to a church that doesn't raise their hands. And then, <laughs> and then he was like, oh, God, what do I do? It was funny. Anyway, that's what y'all remind me of. So why the worm in verse number six? Definitely not something I would use to describe Christ. It's a lowly creature. It's slimy. It's, it crawls around in the dirt. It, it, it has the opposite connotation as you would normally give to Jesus. So that's something that should stand out in your mind. When you break this little scripture apart, it's pretty amazing. There are multiple terms in the Bible for the word worm as far as Hebrew, the Hebrew language is concerned. Ramah, which means, uh, which means a maggot or a certain type of worm, is used very often. There's a few others. Uh, but here in Psalm 22, verse 6, the word used for worm is pronounced tola'af, and it literally means crimson worm or scarlet worm. This particular worm, this crimson worm, the scientific name for it is Cocos elysis, which doesn't really matter, but if you want to look it up, it is a very unique worm, and it looks more like a grub than an actual worm. In fact, it's a very small, pea-sized, pea-shaped worm that is a deep crimson red color. Most people, when they see it, they have no idea that it's a worm. They think it's something growing off of the plant or, uh, or the thing that it's attached to, but it's, it's actually a worm. This worm has a lot of unique characteristics about it. I want you to keep in mind that a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, a thousand years before his birth, a thousand years before his ministry, David had it on his heart to write Psalm 22. And in verse number six, he said, I am no man, but I am a worm. Now, we understand that Jesus Christ was a man. Yes. But we also understand that he is God in the flesh. Yes. That the Bible says he came in the likeness of flesh. But we know that he had no earthly father. So he is a man, but not a man the way that we think of a man. Flesh and blood, but his father is God in heaven. I want you to keep that in mind. A thousand years before. This worm does a lot of unique things. This particular worm, when it's ready to have children or bear children, it has to find the trunk of a tree or a wooden fence post. Before it can have these children. It finds that or a stick. And then this worm will attach its body. To this piece of wood. And form a hard crimson shell on the outside. The shell is so strong. And so permanently affixed. To that stick or to that piece of wood. That it can never be removed. Without tearing the shell apart and killing the worm itself, when it's ready to have children. The worm will lay its eggs underneath its body, underneath that protective shell. And when the baby worms hatch, they stay under the shell. 
Now the mother's body in that hard, protective crimson layer offers protection, but it also provides them with food. The babies that are born to this worm actually stay underneath the shell that is attached to that piece of wood and they get all of their substance and all of their food from the body of the living mother itself. I seem to remember Jesus right before he went to the cross, took a loaf of bread, if you will, and tore it apart and said, this is my body that shall be broken for you. Take and eat. And pouring a glass of wine and saying, this is my blood. Deep red wine poured out for you. For the new covenant. After a few days. When the young worms grow to the point that they are able to take care of themselves. The mother dies. On that piece of wood. And as this worm dies. It oozes out a crimson or scarlet red dye, which not only permanently stains the wood that it is attached to, but also the young children. And they are colored scarlet red for the rest of their lives. Jesus Christ, when he got nailed to that cross, when he cried out, Eli, Eli, Elisabachthani, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? What he said was, read Psalm 22, my children, because I am attached to this cross. I am attached to this piece of wood. Why couldn't he call down 10,000 angels? Because the 10,000 angels would have to rip his body off of that cross. And he said, I am not coming off of this cross unless it kills me. So it wouldn't have done the angels any good because he is that worm. He was permanently attached He wanted to feed his children, his apostles, his people. And he said, I'm not coming off of this thing until they're ready, even if it kills me. And then once he came off, that piece of wood was permanently stained with the priceless, innocent blood of Jesus Christ. And according to this worm, it is also going to permanently stain all of his children. Praise God. Because when God is good. I don't know about you, but when I get up to heaven, I don't want God to see me. I don't want him to see what I've done. I don't want him to look on my face. I don't want him. I don't want my skin to be visible. When he sees me, I want him to see the blood of his son. I want to be stained in that blood for the rest of my life. I don't want to walk out from underneath that thing. I don't want to be the one crying one day, Father, why have you forsaken me? God says he'll never leave us, nor will he forsake us. He has stained you with that blood. If you make an effort to wash it off and you want to walk away, that's between you and God. But if you do not do that, you are allowed to fall. You are allowed to stumble. You are allowed to make mistakes and he will still feed you and he will still cover you. And nobody, but nobody can rip him off of that cross in your life is all it's going to do is end in his death, which ends in your life. This dead mother crimson worm's body will lose its color 
after the children are old enough and staying with the red dye. And it turns bleach white into a waxy substance and it falls to the ground like snow. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. This happens exactly three days after that red dye is secreted. It stays on that wood for three more days, then it turns white and it falls off. This worm only has children once, as you can probably deduce from the life cycle. The book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 9, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood did he enter in once. Everybody say once into that holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Acts 17, 25, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to everybody life and breath and all things. Remember those worms live their first three days underneath that shell of that mom and everything that they need is underneath that shell. He is made of one blood, or I say blood, all nations of men to dwell in the face of the earth and has determined the times before they were appointed and the bounds of their habitations that they should seek the Lord. If happily, they might feel after him and find him, though he's not far from any one, any one of us. For in him we live in him we move and in him we have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. When he says poets, he's referring to the, the referring to the psalmists, which is not just David, but there are three or four. According to your own psalms. In him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. Well, what psalm is that in? Well, if you understand the worm in Psalm chapter 22, verse 6, we are permanently underneath that covering. We live inside of that shell. What I wanted to tell you this morning, very short for us and very simply, is that God did Everything. The reason that Christ said it is finished is because this only needs to happen once. It only needs to happen once. That's all that it takes. If he lives one time, if he dies one time, if he has one drop of innocent blood hit this earth, that means you are redeemed from the curse. You are covered by his blood. You are adopted as his children. And everything you need. Is provided. In him you live. In him you breathe. And in him you have your being. A ballad is a song. Every psalm was written to a tune. This is the ballad of the crimson worm. How on earth did David know? How on earth did David pen Psalm 22 so exactly, so precisely, so deep, so amazing with at least 
three Hebrew words, two that are used very often, three Hebrew words for worm, he decides to write that one. 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, 1,000 years before the ministry of Christ, 1,000 years before the death of Christ. Stand to your feet with me this morning. Our worship team can go ahead and come up. God is good. I don't want you to have to fight at the restaurants with the Baptist churches, so we're going to see if we can pull a little bit more out of this. Just a few more minutes. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. God is good. I hope in this message today, and I hope going forward through the rest of 2013, that you guys really feel the heartbeat of Edgewater Church, that you guys really feel the freedom. See, I want to be bound by Psalm 22. I do. I want to live in that. I want to live in him. I want to breathe in him. I want to have my being in him. I want to be bound by that. But I don't want to be bound by a religion that tells me all these other rules about how I have to live my life. We are never going to back down from what the Bible calls sin. We are never going to back down from what God and Jesus Christ commanded us to do. But I don't want to take all 613 commandments that are in the Old Testament, watch Jesus Christ agonize and live his life in the midst of people that spit on him, didn't deserve him, didn't understand him, that he came to save and do all of this work to will it down to two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Just to turn around and reinvent the will. And come up with 613 new laws that we think represent our New Testament even better. And end up with cookie cutter churches. And people with no personalities. People with no vision. It absolutely baffles me that in the community. Which I'm saying the Christian community of churches that there are so many people that believe, I'm hoping 99% at least of people in the Christian churches that believe that their God, their deity, was able to produce human offspring through a virgin girl of 16 or 17 years old who saved their life and the entire world. It baffles me inside of a community like that how so many people can lack imagination. Honestly, we have a story like that And the best we can do is be rigid and structured about everything. I'm all for doing things decently and in order. And there needs to be some structure, but not at the expense of the freedom of your mind and the freedom of your heart. God came to set you free. And all the laws you can reproduce are not going to keep you from stumbling or dealing with sin anyway. So let's be free to deal with it. Let's be open about it. I'd like to build a church where people could confess to one another, as the Bible says in the book of James, without judgment, because you're not breaking our church rules. You're struggling with your spiritual walk. And then maybe we wouldn't judge each other. Maybe we could lay hands. Maybe we could pray. Maybe we could see results. I think this is the kind of church that God's raising up. I do not think we're alone in this. I think this is happening not only to new churches, but old churches, a metamorphosis. Because God is not going to return to this earth without at least doing his best to allow his people to walk in the power of the anointing of unity 
And that unity cannot be structured around all of our separate ideas and rules that we label ourselves inside of our denominations. He said, I'm a worm. Despised of men. Lower than men. He would go to that extent. Can we just let go of our pride a little bit? And allow ourselves and our brothers and sisters to freely worship God.